So again, a biblical for today, understanding of marriage during the good, during the bad, and the ugly, <laughs> right? The good, the bad, and the ugly. No matter our situation, no matter where God has us in marriage, you could have the most perfect marriage, this message will apply. You've never ever once argued with your spouse. This message will apply. Maybe in a situation where you have a spouse that's not a believer. This message directly applies to that situation. No matter where you're at on the spectrum of marriage and your experience, this message is for us. Now, if you're listening and you're not married, if you're single, I want you to pay attention. You cannot zone out. This message applies. Because so much about our life and who we are in Christ will apply to any situation. So yeah, it's directly related to marriage, but if you're single, maybe in a, in a moment of separation or divorce, this message applies. In fact, it was, it was one thing somebody said a long time ago, and it's been attributed to a couple different people, that marriage is a wonderful institution, that we can agree. But this individual said, but who wants to live in an institution? All right? So you hear that. I, I think the, the primary person that's attributed to is, uh, what's his name, Groucho Marx. So you probably know why there's a little humor behind that statement. But, but that's the idea. And so we look at this institution of marriage and the purpose of it and who, what we are supposed to do in it, our role in it, our responsibility in it, all under that umbrella of still talking about hope, holiness, humility, and submission that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. In fact, if we go to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he kind of brings some understanding to the concept of marriage. In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He goes on to say, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A profound mystery. Why is marriage a mystery? All of us are probably thinking of some reason right now. We're nudging our spouse going, you're the reason it's a mystery. It's your fault. Don't do that yet. Okay, there's, there's time for that, but there's a specific reason why we would maybe nudge or, or, or give that particular gaze to our, our spouse. But Paul says the mystery is profound. So why is it a mystery? As it relates to Christ and the church, that's what the mystery is. But that's the mystery revealed. In fact, Timothy Keller in his book about marriage would say, Marriage is glorious but hard. It's a burning joy and strength. And yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats and exhausting victories. Can we agree with that? Amen. <laughs> That's what marriage is. But again, what we're talking about is how do we now as church, with our hope in Christ, pursuing holiness, now have a vision towards marriage in a post-Christian America that we live in? We need to consider that, don't we? We can't necessarily live in the bubble because when we go out, our, out outside of that bubble, outside of our home, the marriage role and responsibility still applies. We are still an example in marriage to the world around us. So what does that look like in a post-Christian world? Well, number one, we need to understand just that. What does the world think about marriage nowadays? And as we talked about a few weeks ago in setting up this letter to Christians living in a non-Christian world, we talked about a lot of things that were happening that would point to being and living in a pagan world, a world that doesn't honor God, a world that doesn't want anything to do with God, a world that uh, isn't going to consider God or his morals or standards or his word in, in regards to politics, economics, or marriage or anything else. We're seeing that divorce rate continue to hover around 40 to 50 percent nationwide. That's even within the church as well. Numbers might be a little bit lower, but within the church, you're looking at 35 to 40 percent divorce rate even within the church. So even though that's starting to hover, which we could say, well, that's a good thing. It's not increasing. 
but there's a reason it's starting to level off. That's because something called cohabitation is on the rise. Cohabitation is simply a fancy word for living together outside of marriage. And that is on the rise. Statistically, the numbers are increasing high enough that it warrants being a statistic. That people are trying it out. It's a test run. So to speak, kicking the tires before you purchase the car. Do I really want to live with this individual? Can I marry this individual? And some say that they end up getting married and their marriage actually goes down the tubes. It's an interesting statistic if you really look at all the numbers. But a lot of people are deciding to cohabitate and yet not get married because marriage doesn't have a lot of value by today's standards. What was hard to read, I was looking at all these different surveys and statistics regarding marriage and one particular one stated that 57% of Christians surveyed, at least in this survey, a particular one that were, dis- that were talked to or- and questioned, 57% of Christians said casual sex prior to marriage was acceptable. 57%. So we're starting to see how marriage, according to God's standards, is not going to be valued in America today. These people are just going to do their own thing, their own way. Marriage in the U.S. is deteriorating, again, according to God's standards. It is deteriorating into that institution of sin-filled philosophies, pagan practices, whatever you want to call it, anti-biblical practices. So in light of Peter's letter to the Christian community, he brings focus to what we would call unequally yoked marriages, where you have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse living together. And there's a reason why, and I'm going to kind of bring some cultural context a little bit in in, in just a little bit after we read. But again, even though that's kind of the primary focus of these seven verses, again, I want to make it very clear. If that's not your situation, you are not allowed to tune out. (laughs) You're not allowed to shut down and, and not pay attention because, well, that's not my situation. I don't need to worry about it. Remember, no matter your situation, God's word will apply to your life no matter what it is. Again, in this concept of a hope-filled life, we look at this and say there is hope for your marriage. No matter your circumstance, there is hope for your marriage. So let's read together. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, if you have it in front of you. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Father God, we need your spirit to speak loud and clear this morning. Lord, all of us are in a different circumstance, coming from different lifestyles and different experiences in regards to marriage or the lack thereof. Whatever it might be, Father, I pray that your word would be heard. That through your word, there would be encouragement. There would be that sense of hope and joy and excitement about what you say regarding the institution that you've created. Father, may we be convicted, if need be, of the areas where we've fallen short. That we've been living in a way that doesn't honor your word when it comes to marriage. 
So, Father, bring us back to a place this morning where we fall in line and in step with your word and your spirit. You will work in our lives, all of us here, in our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me bring you some of that cultural context we were talking about. Context in general, but culturally speaking. Why would Peter feel necessary to write about marriage? One, two, why out of seven verses that Peter dedicates, why six of them to the wives and only one to the husbands? Wives, don't be upset about that. That'll become clear. But culturally speaking, in that day, a couple thousand years ago, women did not have rights. In their culture, in their day, they were very much inferior, especially in marriage. Their role and their rights were very minimal. They weren't regarded high in society. They weren't living in a free society, as we would say, or, or define freedom from an American perspective. They were simply there to take care of the house, give birth to children, and raise those children, and that's about it. They weren't regarded very well. And so Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, felt it necessary to write to the wise and to marriage in this context because the church was exploding around the world. The church was blossoming, and, and there were going to be some that came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, and so therefore, how do they go about marriage? Especially understanding that cultural context of not being seen in a very good way. How do they handle themselves? How do they go about their marriage and go about society when they're considered inferior, but yet in Christ they're set free? In Christ they have value, but according to their husbands and culture, they're not. So this moment right here is a strong word of encouragement to the wives in particular because of their role. So guys, you can't slack off don't zone out we'll come back to you we'll hit you hard too just a minute but let's focus on what peter says to the women for a moment i wanted to bring some understanding to why peter would start with the term likewise in verse one of chapter three he says likewise so in the context of everything that he had been talking about in the letter that he was writing he says, wise women, I want you to keep that in mind. Everything that's just been discussed, hope, pursuing holiness and righteousness, who you are, how God sees you. Christ died for you to set you free. The value that you have in Jesus as part of his family and a part of his church. Keep that in mind, given your situation. That has to drive you. But also likewise, in what we had just got done talking about and what Peter just wrote about submission to those in leadership over you, to those in authority over you, he says to the wives, likewise. So in that context, again, we need to be very, very clear. This is a context and a talk regarding wives and husbands, not females to males. We need to understand that. This is wives and husbands within the marriage context, not generally speaking in society of women to men. And that's for us today, too. This is where a lot of people will get hung up on this conversation because they feel, oh, you're talking about women being submissive to men. No. In marriage, yes. In society at large, no, that's not what we mean. But again, I also want to bring us back to the definition of submission that we talked about last week and now specifically in marriage. So again, the marriage relationship, the husband and the wife belong to each other. There is unity in marriage. As we just read, as Paul reminded us all that there is the idea of one flesh, unity. There is not superior, there is not inferior in marriage. In fact, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 3, it says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. We belong to each other in marriage. So again, submission in this regard is similar to what we discussed last week. A definition, another one that I came across speaks very clear to this. Submission should characterize every Christian. 
Submission should characterize every Christian. In fact, the Greek word for submission has in view, now listen to this, the maintenance of God's willed order. The maintenance of God's willed order. Not personal inferiority of any kind. There is an order that God created. That even God the Father is in leadership over Christ the Son. We as human beings are in submission to Jesus Christ. And in the marriage relationship, the wife is submissive to her husband. That doesn't mean lower, it doesn't mean inferior. We're going to make that very clear here very soon. So please get that out of your mind that in your job as an employee to an employer, there is submission. Remember talking about that? As a player to a coach, as a student to a teacher. In every aspect of life, there is a God-ordained, willed order of submission of authority. So the same thing applies to marriage. But yet wives of unbelieving husbands are to respond in the same way that we discussed roles and responsibilities last week. Our role as being submissive to those in authority over our life doesn't mean inferior, doesn't mean you can be trampled on and walked on and abused and hurt. It just means that you respect and honor those in authority over you. The responsibility we said last week was to pray for those in leadership over us. Don't we need to do that today? Big time. Please, I, I, I ask you guys, be praying for our president. Be praying for our members of Congress. Be praying for your boss. Be praying for your teachers. Be praying for your employers. Be, pray, be praying for anybody in leadership over you. And wives, if you're in a position where you have a husband that is not a believer, be praying for your husband. If you trust in God Almighty, then you can trust that God can change hearts. His will will be done. So again, there is nothing in Scripture that dictates that either spouse can sin and become disobedient to God's willed order. And this is the purpose of this message, that these people that are finding salvation in Jesus Christ and may have an unbelieving husband or wife, either it can go either way, that Christian now does not have the right to sin and be disobedient to God's willed order. It doesn't stop just because you have faith in Christ now. You following me? Christ came to get rid of sin. 1 John 3, 8 says, For whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Being disobedient to God's word, being disobedient to his willed order for every aspect of life, if you decide to move against that, you're sinning against God. But we need to be very, very careful that our hearts and our lives, our minds are settled on the Word of God. That we're being obedient to the Word of God in every respect and let that guide us. Maybe even in situations and scenarios and circumstances that maybe an individual is not honoring God by their life or respecting you in marriage. And this is why this gets very personal today, because this is here and now in front of your face. That's what, Remember we talked about our uh, submission to the authority in Washington, D.C.? 3,000 miles removed. President Biden isn't living in your house. You're not living together day to day. But with your husband and wife, especially with one that may not be a believer, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be situations there. There's going to be words spoken, actions made that is not going to be pleasant. It's not going to align with Scripture. And so when you live in that moment day to day, it's extremely difficult to look beyond those circumstances, look beyond those words, rise above that and, and, and fall into the grace of God. I understand the difficulty of it. But this is what you're being called to do as much as you possibly can. Remember, our redemption, our salvation in Christ should only work to confirm 
God's will. Our salvation in Christ works to confirm God's will as an example and a witness through our life to all those around us, even those living inside of our home. So again, wives of believing husbands, does anything change in this conversation? No. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Because as Peter lays out now, there's four aspects in, this, in these six verses for the wives that we're going to look at. Four aspects. So if, you are, if you're taking notes or whatever, you can write these down and, and then just come back to them later on. But there's four aspects in these verses we want to break down. Number one, wives, your role is submissive. A submissive nature to God first and then to your husband. But please write in the margins, highlight, bold, whatever else. Please remember, this does not mean you're inferior. It does not mean that you subject yourself to sin. It does not mean that you subject yourself to anything that is going to cause you to sin, be outside of God's will, subject yourself to abuse, albeit any kind, verbal, emotional, or physical abuse. If that's the situation, you can remove yourself from that situation, and you should. You're not honoring the Lord by allowing yourself to be harmed. I want to make that very, very clear. But who you are in Christ, your value does not change when you're in a divided marriage. Sometimes that's hard to see. Sometimes it's hard to understand that your value and how God sees you, that has not changed just because you are married to an individual who is not honoring the Lord. Or is backslidden or is not seeking the Lord actively, whatever the case may be. Your value remains extremely high in God's economy. But I want to remind us of some of the things in light of this conversation of what we went through already in the first couple of chapters. They're not in your notes in front of you, but, but just listen to these verses again that we've already gone through and how they pertain to now the marriage situation. In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 3 through 7, again, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There is hope in the future. Regardless of your circumstances now, God is preparing something extremely special for you. It goes on to say, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You might be in a situation right now where your marriage is that trial. You're being grieved by that trial because of an individual that just is not open to faith, not open to Jesus Christ, not open to going to church, doesn't want anything to do with it. And that's difficult because you want nothing more than that individual to find that joy, hope, and salvation that you've experienced and yet there's nothing. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. How frustrated can we become in marriage? Don't say anything. But how frustrating can it be when you're trying to communicate and it's not received? When you're trying to ask for something and it's not returned? When all you want is the love of the individual that you're living with, then there's silence. You know, sometimes they say, you know what the opposite of love is? It's indifference. The opposite of love is not hate. Because if there's hatred, that means there's something that's being sent your way. It means they're thinking about you and sending some sort of feeling your way. No, the opposite of love is indifference. That when you give love and all you receive is crickets, nothing, silence, indifference, ignorance. That's difficult. That's exhausting. It can wear you down, beat you down. But again, don't give in to the passion of what you want to do in that situation. How you want to respond in your former ways 
again, we still need to be obedient to the word of God. In chapter 2, verses 9, uh, again, that, that identity of who you are, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Don't forget who you are. And then down in verse 23, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Think about that in regards to the marriage relationship. So again, that submissiveness again to the Lord and to your husband, it's your role, it's your responsibility. Number two, wives, your actions as you seek holiness, as you seek purity, will speak louder than any word that you can possibly offer. Again, husbands, don't forget, I'm talking to you. Husbands, if you're in this situation with an unbelieving wife, same thing applies. Just flip the conversation there. But your actions are going to speak louder than any words you can offer. You will not argue. You will not nag your spouse to salvation. It's not going to happen. Because all that does is put somebody into a corner. And when you're in that situation, when you drive somebody into a corner, you're only setting them up to do what? To attack in response. And so Peter is pointing out here that our actions is what's going to draw people to an understanding of who Christ is. Don't forget that when we keep in step with the Spirit, we allow that fruit of the Spirit to come forth. Can we speak love? Sure. Can we speak joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Yeah, we can speak those, but does it have the same effect as living them? No, you live joy. You live love. You act on gentleness. You act on self-control. It's the fruit, the actions of your life in Christ that are going to speak more than whatever comes out of your mouth. And that's what Peter is saying. Your actions will speak louder than words. Don't forget what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Think about that in light of your marriage. You are serving Christ by the example that you give to that individual. Number three, your character. Your character. What's inside of you that is driving you on? Your character, according to God, is far more important than outer beauty, according to the world's standards. That's why he spent some time talking about gold and jewelry and the way you clothe yourself and braid your hair, all that stuff. Those, are those things wrong, ladies? No. No. It's not sinful. So please don't take those things, that list, as legalistic standards that you are not allowed to pursue. It's okay. Jewelry's fine. Wear it myself. Clothing's fine. Keeping up with the latest styles, not a problem. As long as, what? That's not what you're driving after. It's not that you're pursuing those things as more important than the inner character and quality of who you are in Christ. So you have to evaluate where you're at when it comes to fashion and beauty and what the world is saying you need to look like. Because if you pine for those things, if those things become your idols, those things become more important to you than the character of who you are in Christ, then all you're doing is you're setting yourself up to be a visual to the world to achieve the, the, the response from the world because of how you look. That's not what we're doing. So again, those things are not wrong, but they just cannot become more important than the spiritual character and our pursuit of holiness and righteousness inside of us. 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. That's what he looks at. That's what's important to him. Not all the outer stuff that you do to make yourself more appealing to those outside. Because number one, you're pining after character. You're pining after righteousness, holiness, spirit-led truth and action in your life. Any more than that that becomes more important to you, especially if it's done outside of marriage, 
to pine for the uh, respect and, and the adoration and accolades from anybody outside of your husband or your wife, if that's a mentality, then that's wrong. We need to be pursuing who God wants us to be. Peter says, ladies, you've got to consider the hidden person of the heart. Did you catch that phrase? The hidden person of the heart. Now you, can, you can read into that a couple different ways. Number one, who lives in you when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. We talked about that. He takes up residence inside of you, so that may be that hidden person that the, other, the world around you cannot see unless you are exuding who he is. You're living his character in life in love. You can also view it as just his grace, his mercy, the fruit of the Spirit, and those things that come from God's word. But that hidden person of the heart, what does it say in Romans 7, 22? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Ephesians 3, 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Don't forget, we're a vessel. That's it. We allow God's spirit to come into us and we allow God's spirit to shine forth from us. That's our purpose here. And in the context of marriage, for those that may not agree with Christianity, don't want anything to do with God, don't want to do anything to do with church or communion or singing songs or doing the things that we do here that just seems awkward to them and so they're just, they shun it and they don't want, just don't want to have it, then you got to be that example for them. When you're in the home, you be the church. If they're not going to come to church, then that's okay. You be the church to them. They see you glorify God. Again, not by your words, but by your response to the life around you. Number four, simply enough, do good. That's it. When you're pursuing God, you're pursuing his word, you're pursuing that character of holiness, then the only thing that can come is the good that God wants us to do. Do good. Let's so remind us of 1 Peter 3, just in the verses, uh, excuse me, the verses down, uh, 1 Peter 3, 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Thank you for asking. I'm going to read it again. 1 Peter 3, 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We're not calling people foolish, but by how we live, they may look at you, your spouse, and, and just be mean to you and be hostile towards you, persecute you because of what you believe and, and why you go to church and you do all that churchy Christ Jesus stuff. But yet, in the midst of that hostility, in the midst of that you're doing good, you're presenting love, you're presenting peace and joy because of the hope of salvation, that speaks volumes. All I'm being is ugly to this person, and yet all I'm receiving is goodness. That'll silence people. That'll put people to shame and maybe even cause them to think, in the midst of hostility, they're still happy. They still have joy. They might ask the question, why? Why? How can you still have joy when I'm just being nasty to you? <laughs> then, go ahead and share a little bit of your love for Jesus. Because they saw your action and responded to that. Now you can give them some words. Okay, ladies, breathe. I want you to see that that was encouragement. You, can you hear why Peter was writing this to the wives in that day? This was not a 
put a thumb on you and drive you down and, and discouragement. No, this is encouragement. How you can continue to live a hope-filled life amidst a situation that may not be very pleasant. So ladies, go ahead and breathe. It's time to dig into the men a little bit. So you might have said, well, why do the wives get six verses to give us encouragement and, and all that? And all the, the husbands just get one. Well, you know why. We've got to simplify things for the guys a little bit. All right, keep it simple, saint. <laughs> Thought I was going to say it. <laughs> but I want you to understand, in this one verse, guys, husbands, so much is said. So much is said. So in six verses, ladies, we gave you four points to consider. Hope you heard those. Hope you wrote them down. Revisit them. Again, this message will be posted. You can play it again so you can be reminded. Guys, there's four things in one verse I want you to grab onto. Husbands, listen. Verse 7, likewise, there's that word again. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is not the only place in Scripture that God speaks to marriage. God speaks to husbands. Again, we started with Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to go there again. But in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That speaks to service and sacrifice. That agape love that Christ had for all of us in how he served and how he sacrificed his life. Husbands, you are to love your wives in the exact same way, through service and sacrifice. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Be reminded of the cultural context we were in. That's even a radical word to husbands in that day, who had every right to treat their wives however they wanted to. And yet here Paul is saying, there's no reason to be harsh with them. Love them. But if we come back to 1 Peter, what does he say? Likewise, husbands, live with them. Now, I know that might be a weird place to stop. <laughs> of course I'm going to live with my wife. You would think that would be a no-brainer. But I want to I kind of get into that a little bit. Husbands, live with your wives. What does that mean? Just to be present and sleep in the same bed and under the same roof? No. Well, yes, please do so, but there's so much more to that. Living with her means you need to be there in every respect. You need to be available in every way. You don't get, husbands, listen, you don't get time off from your marriage. You don't get to use the excuse that just because you had a long day and you're tired, you need to come home and just sit and kick up your feet and have some time away. There is no break from marriage. There's no time off from marriage. If you and your wife can come to an agreement that you each need that time once in a while, have that conversation. But you don't get to make that excuse every day because what has been her situation? She's been working all day long. And you get to come home, kick up your feet and relax while she has to continue to work and take care of the kids and nonstop. And you'll help when you feel like it's a good time to help. No. So I want that to be a strong word. There's no time off in marriage. You don't get a break. You don't get to disconnect because your job may have been difficult that day. So to live with her means be available. Be present physically. Be present emotionally. Be present spiritually. If you are the head of your house, according to God's word, if you're the authority in your house, then you are to be there spiritually for your wife to help guide her and lead her in the way of God's word. So husbands, live with your wives, but it also goes on, number two, and be understanding. Live with her in an understanding way. That means you purposefully and strategically accumulate knowledge of her. You know, I paused in, in, in reading and doing some studying. I, I turned to Jessica. 
I said, hey, Jess, answer this for me. I kind of knew some answers. I had a little pride anyway, 17 years of marriage. So I had some answers, but I wanted to hear her response. So I asked her, what does it mean for husbands to live in an understanding way of their wives? What does that mean? Give me some words so I can clearly communicate what that means. And a couple of things that came out says, guys, you remember when you were dating? You were really seeking her out, weren't you? You were really asking those questions. You really were trying to get to know her, love her, pine for her affections. And then when you were engaged, maybe even ramp that up a little bit more. Like that ring's on the finger, that diamond is there, it's go time. I'm going to learn more and more and more and just be that guy you were always looking for. To be that knight in shining armor, I'm going to sweep you off your feet and you were doing everything possible. And then you got married. Why'd you stop? Why'd you stop pursuing? Why'd you stop dating? Why'd you stop asking questions? Why'd you stop seeking the answers to know her more and better at a deeper level than you ever have? So that's a word for any of the guys, husbands, listening. And you better get back to work. Because that's what it means to live with her in an understanding way that you can pause and look at her eyes and ask a question and then stay locked on while she answers. Don't, don't pretend like you can listen and still watch the game at the same time. Doesn't work. Trust me. It doesn't work. My wife knows this about me. So I do all that I can many times to put the phone down, turn the TV off, or completely turn myself and look at her so I'm listening, seeking understanding for whatever it might be. And there was an example that she came up with that I conveniently forgot about early in our marriage. We were newly married, maybe about a year in, a little more than a year. We had had uh, Cammie, she was still a baby. We were living in a condo in Ontario, and I said, give me a, give, I said, Jess, give me a real example for this. And she says, remember when I asked you to take out the trash and you didn't? Well, part of my first response was, what time? <laughs> it happened a lot. She says, no, there was one specific time that she remembered. And I told her, I, Stephen Ill, still to this day, I have no recollection of this memory. But it had to do with the trash. Trash needed to be taken out. But she had gotten to that point of being, she was a, a, a new wife and a new mom and extremely tired. And we love our daughter, but there were nights when she just would not stop crying. <laughs> I love you, but you would not stop crying. Many times, Jess and I always talk about, praise God, that it was the, the Olympics were on in that day. Because they would run the Olympics at like 2, 3, 4 in the morning. We're like, whew, at least we can watch something while she screams her head off. But there were moments where it was just frustrating. And it had to do with the trash. But I think you know the answer to this. Was it about the trash? Was it about the fact that I didn't take out the trash when she had asked me to? No. It was that I wasn't listening. I wasn't hearing. I wasn't paying attention to what she really needed, which is not take out the trash, but to pay attention to her. To love her because she was tired. You probably have your own examples. So we need to live with our wives in an understanding way. More than you ever have before. Find those moments Maybe there's things you've forgotten that you found out early on that have kind of gone by the wayside because maybe today they're not so important like her favorite flower or her favorite color. Simple things, but then build and go deeper and deeper and deeper into who she is. What are her passions? What does she want to do? What would she like to do? How would she like to 
decorate the house? How, what would she, where would she like to go on vacation? What is in her mind? When you ask, how was your day? Don't settle for fine. You guys know that difference, right? You have those conversations. How was your day, hon? It's fine. Now you could take that one of two ways. It was fine. As a guy, you're like, oh, cool. You had a good day. Wrong. <laughs> because there's more behind that fine and that's your signal, husbands, to press in. Tell me why it was fine. If it truly was a good day, tell me why. What happened? Find and seek and pursue. And when you know it wasn't a good day, you lock on and you follow her around the house and you don't stop asking no matter how annoying you will be because you're interested to know how she's doing, truly, deeply. Not just that surface layer, I'm good, I'm fine. But you gotta pursue, live with understanding. It involves active listening, hunting her down to know more, learn more, listen more, seeking new ways to value her and honor her as your bride. And that leads in to point number three, showing honor to her. Now, Peter said something that maybe a lot of ladies took offense to, and a lot, a lot will. Showing honor to her as what? The weaker vessel. Ladies, please don't be offended by that. Again, it's not inferiority. has nothing to do with that. And in fact, when you look at the original language regarding that aspect, it's treat her as you would a fine vessel, fine china. Think about that for a minute. I mean, I know guys, we're not into China. The China patterns and everything, I'm sure your wife is the ones that picked those out. And they're in a case, they're boxed up, they're somewhere maybe on display, but if they're important to her, then you better bet they're important to you. But you treat your wife like fine China. You're careful with it. But you also put it on display. It's valuable to you. Maybe not to the rest of the world, but to you, she's everything. Men, we're kind of like an iron skillet. Not very pretty. Messed up. You can bang it, you can throw it, you can toss it, you can burn it, you can scrape it, you can do whatever you want to it. And it's well-worn, well-used, and will continue to be that way for a long time. But you cannot treat your life like she's an iron skillet. Just because that's who you are, it doesn't mean that's who she is. You ever heard the phrase, like a bull in a china shop? If we're to treat our wife like fine china, then you cannot be a bull in a china shop. You need to step lightly. Step carefully. It doesn't make you less of a man to do so. In fact, it makes you a godly, biblical husband. Because you are acting in a way that is self-controlled. That you're a loving protector of who God has given to you to care for and to look after and to value, to honor that fine china, your wife. But Peter also makes the point that we show honor because we're joint heirs. Is there any semblance of inferiority in that concept? When you're joint heirs because of who God made you and what he's gifted you to have in the future and what we all look forward to, you don't get more in heaven just because you're a husband. She gets less because she's a wife. It has nothing to do with that. So we need to understand a concept that is very important, and it's called imagio dei, or imagio deo. That husbands and wives were all made in the image of, of God. When God created every single one of us, we were made in His image. So husbands, can you look at your wives in that way? Have that perspective? And she is made in the image of God, and if you can't value her with that in mind, then you need to reevaluate your faith in God and who you believe God to be. But in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. 
And then when he presided over the first marriage in chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So in marriage, husbands, as you live with her, as you seek understanding of her, as you care for her, as you honor her, as one who is made in the image of God, then by doing so, point number four, you're going to grow in holiness yourself. As you continue to hold on to the hope and pursue holiness in God and view your wife from that perspective in honor, love, and respect, this is why Peter will end this section by saying, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Did you make that connection, husbands? So that your prayers would not be hindered. Why would your prayers be hindered? I'm going to ask you a question. Why would God honor your prayers if you're dishonoring your wife in your marriage? Strong statement. Something we all need to think about. Why would God honor your prayers and bless you when you're doing nothing to value and honor and respect and love the wife he's given you? And the marriage institution that is supposed to be a picture of Christ and his love for the church. So what I want to do to close us out, and I'm going to give us a couple questions to, to ponder in prayer for a moment. In Ephesians chapter 5, the whole chapter, I'm going to sum up in just a few statements. But it sums up the concept of marriage for both of us, husbands and wives. Summary of Ephesians 5 says, one, be imitators of God. Two, walk in love. Three, you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the beautiful thing about Ephesians and Paul's uh, description of marriage, that you submit to each other. It's not just wives submitting to husbands. You submit to each other because you both, as joint heirs, submit to Christ. So you submit to one another. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I hope you've heard the words today. A lot of words from God's word about hope and holiness and submission, love and respect and honor. You've heard the words now it's up to all of us to go and live that out in our marriage so that we honor God in a biblical way and bring hope to the world around us and within your household as to who God is in this institution of marriage that He's created, in the order that He created it in, and value that and honor that through love, respect, and honor, holiness.